Welcome to the Innovate for Impact podcast. This podcast is for leaders in the social sector like you who want to make a difference. Each episode is packed with practical ideas on how you can be more innovative and create an even bigger social impact. We share our ideas on what you can do and also speak to leaders from the sector to share best practice. So let's get into it and let's talk impact. Today you're here with Tracy Newman and Dan Bentley and today we're really happy to be joined by Doug Taylor from the Smith family. So welcome, Doug. Hi. Thanks for the opportunity to have a chat about innovation. I'm really excited. Yeah, I'm really excited. So yeah, today we want to talk all about how to create the right space to allow innovation. So really excited about this conversation. But just to sort of get us all started, do you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself, Doug? Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, Doug Taylor, uh, been at the uh, the Smith family now for all of three months. Uh, so, training wheels are still well and truly on. And you know, for the I met my met my team for the first time last week. So after three months, we well, met them in person. So it was kind of strange. So there's a whole innovation there in kind of leading an organisation virtually but look prior to that my whole working life have been has been in the not-for-profit sector different kind of spaces here in Australia and internationally and uh, in addition to kind of professionally working in the sector also sit on a number of boards and enjoy you know thinking about governance of those organizations and and volunteering myself yeah i'm particularly excited about this conversation today because it is a really interesting opportunity to talk about innovation with you being i guess brand new to an organization but also having come from an organization that's doing some really impressive work in the innovation space so i think that gives this podcast a really interesting flavor and this should be a really interesting conversation getting to share i guess what's common with those two organizations but also how do you create a totally different space of innovation in a different organisation as well. I feel like you've been reading my mind, Tracy. I really think that leadership is is absolutely critical uh, as it relates to innovation in organisations. You know, there's that kind of quote, I can't remember exactly how it goes, but, you know, in order to be, for there to be innovation in an organisation, you need two things, a, a disruptor and a leader who gives permission for a person to disrupt. And that's the kind of two central ingredients. And I think, that, I think that's dead right. I think it's so important. And I think that goes to both, you know, leadership across the organisation, but really important is the kind of role of boards and the role of executive teams in kind of setting the tone and giving that kind of permission and the the authorizing environment and the structure so a couple of things come to mind um so one is kind of obviously setting the purpose you know why why are we doing innovation too often i've seen innovation in organizations fail because that hard work hasn't been done it becomes a thought bubble a knee-jerk reaction, someone on a board says, I need the innovation paper, we do it, but it's not really kind of baked into the purpose of the organisation and why it's critical for us to do it at this particular time. So purpose is just so important. I think then the other thing that's really important uh, in that kind of authorising environment is, is culture. That's just such a critical dimension to giving people the kind of permission to get on and do effective uh, innovation and, and really make it sustainable because I think... Leadership is important because you're trying to hold two things, you know, 
efficient service delivery and implementation, which is a particular culture and skill set, but then giving room and permission for innovation, which is a totally differently orientated practice that's largely about learning and insight and iterative improvement. So it's they're very different and they've got to be held together. And that's, I think, where leadership's important and, and then the culture that brings those two things together. And I guess the kind of two things jump out at me in terms of the, the cultural piece. So one is, you know, psychological safety as being so very important, giving the space where people can both kind of have the baseline of inclusion where, you know, there's a, a welcoming, inclusive sort of environment and context, but hopefully over time maturing and growing beyond that to kind of welcoming um, challenge and challenging of the status quo. If you're open to that, that's a higher level of culture because you're really talking about, let's be honest, uh, confrontation and conflict. I've often likened innovation to a bit of a blood sport because <laughs> it's inherently about challenging the status quo. And that means you're into the realm of politics and, and it, it, you've got to have a culture. If you really want to do innovation seriously and make it stick, you've got to have a culture that can not just accommodate it, but actually welcome it and seek out those kind of challenging, disruptive voices. So all of that, I think, you know, there's many other dimensions I could I could talk to and happy to talk more about the leadership thing. I might pause on that. But I think those things are, you know, really, you know, essential kind of ingredients that require lots of, you know, nuance and maturity and leadership at the board and executive level to really support in organisations. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, especially around the culture. I think, you know, you, you speak to anyone that's on a board or any executive in an organization, they probably think, yeah, I either am innovative or I want to be more innovative. But then you sort of say, well, this is what comes along with it. There's going to be challenging of things that you may have created, departments that you've been the head of for some time. Oh, I don't, I don't want that, you know, <laughs> that bit I don't want. How, how do you create that culture where uh, those exec team and and everybody with that senior level does what well, not even just the senior level it probably starts there but how do you create that so that whole culture throughout the organization feels comfortable sitting in that space because it is a little bit scary for people that's the reality yeah it really is organizational leadership comes back to three things for me it comes back to you know purpose people and progress so in most not-for-profits i've been a part of I've always found an ability to kind of build a narrative around the why for innovation and often from the history of the organisation, which is certainly the case of the Smith family. And when I was at Uniting, there was a really terrific, powerful story about a history of innovation. So kind of using that as a foundation for why it's important for us and then equally thinking about contemporising that sort of purpose that, you know, if we're seriously focused on being not-for-profit organisations and here for social good, then our work is never done and there's always a strong mandate to do things better and to find people who've got problems and challenges that we need to find new ways to work with. So there's like this, you know, really strong case. And so for me, that that kind of purpose thing becomes really important. I guess then on the second one, which is a P, isn't that nice? People. It does then mean having the right capability both around the executive team in the board and in your senior leadership in the organization to ensure that you've got the mix of skills that as i said before you've you know you need operational effectiveness but you do need the kind of leadership capabilities around learning and curiosity and an appetite for ambiguity and all those things if you don't have that mix of skill sets around a table in leading an organisation, then I think people are going to innovate despite the culture and despite the, the context in which they're working, but it won't stick and it won't be sustained and it probably won't scale. 
So I think there's very practical things. And then, of course, you know, performance and progress. And for me, that's all. Yeah, one of the things that is really strong at the Smith family is a laser-like focus on outcomes um, and, you know, really, really a high bar in terms of what we're setting in terms of how we think about that. But you know, if you're focused on outcomes, then the journey of innovation never ends because there's always insights from, you know, how we collect data as it relates to outcomes and engage customers, clients, members of the community and sources for kind of improvement uh, in relation to that. So it's this never-ending kind of journey that you can glean from it. You know, if I think about the kind of stepping up that all of that, I, I really then think you kind of then thinking about what's the role, because I've been very kind of internally, institutionally focused there around an organisation. I mean, the next wave is kind of then thinking about uh, innovation within the context of a system in which we operate. And I think that's a whole nother layer of challenge that, again, all of our organisations should be cognizant of. We're thinking for serious about the environment in which we work in, but that's a whole other challenge of thinking about how you lead people to be more externally orientated, kind of got their eyes up and thinking about how we don't just do our own innovation, but contribute in a, in a system. And, you know, the Australian Centre for Social Innovation has done a lot of great thinking. They've got a great paper on social research and development, which kind of looks at it from a system perspective. But I think that's the next the next wave of thinking about how we lead innovation in organisations beyond ourselves. Yeah, and it's, and it's also about, you know, looking at what other organisations are trying to solve the same problems that we are. You know, I think that's another thing that we're seeing a lot more of at the moment rather than working in silos, that collaboration, that sta- those stakeholder thinking and, and not just thinking about us, but we're thinking about our clients and the people that we support and also those other stakeholders. And if we can get outcomes that actually involve all of those unique perspectives, then we should get much better outcomes that are actually going to improve outcomes for all of those different stakeholders, right? So, Yeah, no, it's so, so true. So true, Dan. And, and, you know, we do all these innovations ourselves. <laughs> how, do we, how do we kind of aggregate, learn from them and, and kind of raise the bar on that, on that work together? It's, it's, I think, a real challenge. And I think Part of the problem, you know, and, and the taxi paper calls this out, is honestly the lack of incentives to do that, you know, particularly as we've gone down this marketization pathway in many of the areas of human services, be it aged care, disability services or other things, the kind of incentives for collaborating or innovation around innovation are less and less there or even, you know, competitive contracts with government. So, you know, we keep it all with ourselves, but the common good is not enabled and bettered by that sort of uh, approach. And I think this is where, you know, philanthropy has a really powerful role to play in not just funding innovation and kind of social pioneering, but maybe a means to kind of, you know, pull together these kind of these initiatives and think about how to how to drive them in, in a similar sort of direction. But equally, it's a lot informed by the mindset of not-for-profit boards and, you know, we've We've increasingly, you know, the Centre for Social Impact, Christian Muir, has done a lot of good thinking with others around shifting our governance view to think about our ecosystem in which we operate, not just our small kind of domain and what we do as, as an institution. Such powerful and important work. And you're right. I think it's where within, you know, the system that's sort of uh, external to, to your organisation is actually often working against that collaboration. That's another system that's right for innovation, isn't it? And, you know, there's so many um, messages that are beginning to change. And what we see is that there's more and more desire from individuals within these areas that are actually beginning to look at it at a systemic level and are really interested in how they can collaborate and work together more effectively. And I think that the opportunity is actually there for the system and, the you know, the way that governments 
allocate funding and things like that actually to to drive that and accelerate that because I think that will be where some of the really important advances will will happen because there won't be any sort of wastage through that collaboration. Yeah, no, look, I totally agree. That's It's kind of exciting frontier to think about. I kind of also challenge myself in, in kind of positing what I've said in that I hear a lot of people kind of talk about the good old days of collaboration before we had competitive contracting and marketization and like and now I haven't been around that long but I was around for a bit of that and I'm not sure there was as much collaboration as we think <laughs> even back then you know and you know it's interesting there's a great McKinsey report that's come out it's just gone on social media in the last few days put out in partnership with the Australian um, Scholarship Foundation a lot about the health of not-for-profit organisations and they make good comments about, you know, workforce and implementation and the like. But they do make this really interesting insight too about um, the role of not-for-profits in systems. And their kind of insight is that not-for-profits are typically well-connected in their system, but they're not shaping their system. They're not kind of influencing and proactively contributing. And that the the insight from the paper is that these, these organisations themselves were saying we could do a lot more collaborating, sharing knowledge, and also bringing in external ideas into our organizations and challenging our thinking. In terms of innovation, the really interesting thing in that in that paper, and it, it, was, a, it was a sample group of about 40 organizations, but all staff participating, was that those organizations felt much of their innovation was focused in their fundraising work. They were doing well on that, less so in their programmatic work with people that they're serving in the community. I thought that was kind of interesting too in terms of where we prioritize because you might argue that you get the kind of innovation right with people we're serving and the money should follow you know, by whatever means. So it's kind of interesting that it falls out in, in that way. And you know, years ago, the Give Easy Innovation Index that was out some some years ago hasn't continued unfortunately it was a great kind of index that looked at innovation capability and not-for-profit organizations I always found it very interesting and there was a great question in there which was something along the lines of what are your sources for innovation insights and they kind of mapped it across you know from boards senior management right you know through to beneficiaries and it was all kind of senior management uh, executive orientated as sources of innovation and further down the line was frontline staff and beneficiaries you know which was quite concerning in terms of you know if I mean I even know in, you know if you're relying on me for the innovation in an organization then good luck to you you know I'd much rather be kind of focusing on the front lines and I guess that's kind of one of the great breaks on innovation which is the blind spot we so often have in terms of the power imbalance between professionals and kind of people we're here to serve and so often you know in our organizations we've just got to get out of the way and find ways to you know create the space time resourcing to really listen to people i think we've got more to do uh, on that front are you looking for innovative ways for your organization to deliver more impact Take our online assessment and receive a customised report in your inbox that highlights exactly what to do next. It takes only five minutes to fill out and it's completely free. Visit impactoconsulting.com.au slash self-assessment. Yeah, you talked a bit before about how the innovation was really sitting in the fundraising side of things, but I'm wondering the role of how funding has been allocated and been evaluated has played a role in that. I know a lot of organisations that we've been working with have been talking about that change from, you know, sort of ticking boxes for funding to now showing more outcomes, showing a lot more collaboration in their approach to 
creating the service or the creating the program or whatever it is that they're getting funding for. I'm wondering if that's going to sort of flip and, and turn the dial a bit in that area. You'd hope so, wouldn't you? There's two narratives, I think. On the one hand, yeah, greater accountability for outcomes, no question, absolutely need that. The downside is the limited amount of fat that we have in terms of contributing to building our innovation capability in organisations because it's all got to be on service delivery. And, you know, the, the, the screws have been tightened, be it, be it contract, be it consumer-directed, the margins are so, you know, what, 9%? What for-profit can survive, you know, effectively off that? That's why you haven't seen so many for-profits move into the NDIS. It's actually quite hard. So accountability is good, but contributional overheads really matters in terms of having the time, space and capability to, to I think, really, you know, really do that work uh, effectively. So I think, yeah, funding funding does matter. And, and as, as I said before, this is where I think, you know, diversification strategies matter in organisations and where philanthropy you know, I'm not sure. Philanthropy in Australia is still nascent, I think, where, you know, if we think about the UK, US, older, you know, societies in terms of contemporary ones, obviously, we've got a much more ancient Indigenous culture that we can certainly learn and grow from. But in the kind of contemporary sense, particularly as it relates to, you know, funding and philanthropy, it's accelerated in recent years, which is great. And and with that, there's coming, I think, a higher level of maturity and focus. And so, it's not moving from just not just the charitable chairman often man, writing checks every year to his favourite charities to really thinking about purpose and their role in the sector and the system in which they operate and developing, I think, a much stronger kind of innovation focus and capability on the philanthropy side, which is just so, so important because with the margins diminishing on the funding side from government, philanthropy is, I think, becoming increasingly important for that reason. Yeah, I think that's where, because often when you're doing systems work, the outcomes aren't as quickly measured and you don't always see that sort of immediate return. But often when you're when you're sort of collaborating and working at that system level, the results are, I guess, longer lasting and more comprehensive. So, you know, sometimes you do need to forego a little bit of immediate being able to see the results immediately to sort of really shift the system, but that the rewards sort of come in down the track. But you you do need to allow the time and you do need to to give people the space to be able to collaborate naturally rather than, you know, hey, we've got four hours, going to put everyone in the room, collaborate, make something really good happen and we want it implemented by five o'clock today. It's just not really that realistic. So I think that's where the philanthropy and, and there's yeah definitely some important work happening from like specific philanthropists in the US who are basically just, you know, handing over large amounts of money and saying, look, we trust that you know what you're doing and we trust you're going to do the best thing here and, and really leaving it then up to I guess the experts in in the area and that's where, you know, the people with the lived experience that they're, you know, including in the the design and including in, you know, what they do in the future is where that really important change can happen. Yeah, no, so so true, Tracy. I was, you know, did some work with Centre for Social Impact a, a little while ago where we looked at government 
reports on the not-for-profit sector for the last 10 plus years. It's a great report that you can read online and a little disturbing because the repetitive nature of the themes and the lack of kind of action on them was kind of the depressing part. But I mean, you go back to 2010, that seminal kind of publication that Productivity Commission did on the not-for-profit sector. In that, they talked about the necessity of an innovation fund for the not-for-profit sector to do that, to kind of build organisation capability, less on the delivery, but more on building the smarts in organisations because it does take time, talent and you know and and resourcing and funding and the like so it is really important and you know if i think about the smith family and uniting and you know the time it takes for those or has taken for those organizations to do some of those bigger you know systemic contributions around innovation it just takes an enormous amount of time i mean kind of two things come to mind you know just thinking about uniting for a minute and the social benefit bond the new pin social benefit bond you know the second bond in the world the first successful bond in the world the new pin program was self-funded and developed by uniting for 10 years and the bond took i think almost two years to get up Uh, now they were big kind of contributions into the system a lot of collaboration particularly with various kind of parties and making that happen but not a lot of organizations have the bandwidth and capability or, or, or discretionary resources to kind of fund and support that but that's what it takes to kind of do that do that work it doesn't happen on the smell of an oily rag unfortunately and i think in addition to that in terms of the smith family one of the things that just a great treasure and a great blessing for the smith family is just the high level of philanthropic support and and donations from the from the wider community and that just gives the organization such incredible kind of autonomy to think about changing needs in the community you know how we can respond to those things using our evidence using our insights and then working with students and families to kind of respond to those things over time it's yeah wonderful organization in that regard and you know next year is the organization centenary and you know i've been kind of doing a lot of thinking about what's the kind of narrative arc of the organization and i won't give you a blow by blow of the history as interesting as it is as fascinating as it is but there's all these incredible kind of innovations over the course of what the Smith family has done. But the thread, I think, is that it's an innovation story, finding the sweet spot between a need that people experience, but also seeing the adjacency in terms of the abundance of resources that can be kind of leveraged within the context of that need to kind of make a sustainable difference. And there's just countless stories of that. And that I think that's innovation. It's kind of abundant resource matched with need. That's what makes an innovation stick and sustainable. Yeah, so it's, it's a powerful story, really. We talk a lot with organizations about being mission focused and ensuring that everybody in the organization, whether they've been there for 20 years or whether they're on the board or they work directly in a, a, you know, a frontline type role, that everybody is aligned to that mission. And it's one of the things that I think in the sector we take for granted a little bit that, okay, you join an organization like this, you're going to remember, you're always going to be engaged. And I think the reality is as humans, we, it does become a little bit Groundhog day sometimes in our work after a while. And how have you seen that being done well in the work that you've done? And, and how do you keep people always focused on that mission? Because you're right, if you get that and then you marry that up with the outcomes, you kind of have this really great momentum as an organization, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I think it is a bit of a combination of of taking it for granted and kind of forgetting this wonderful currency that we have. I mean, often I'm reminding colleagues and and team members, and sometimes maybe is a bit glib or simplistic, but you know, I just think it's a, such a privilege to be in a working environment where you align your values with what you're doing. Like you know, most people in the world, their work is backbreakingly awful so to kind of be have an opportunity to do that i just think is just 
kind of fantastic. So, yeah, just thinking about purpose and how the blurred lines now between, you know, for-profit, not-for-profit government. I mean, we're all talking about purpose as kind of the new currency for engagement, you know, how we really do engage engage people more effectively, which is kind of, kind of interesting, but good because I think, you know, all institutions play a role in bettering society, but obviously not-for-profits have a distinctive element. Two things jumped to mind on that, Dan. So one is um, part of the problem is, I think, not-for-profit boards and executives' view on their purpose has been diminished over time. You know, as I think about many organisations I'm aware of, we've become almost agents of the state in providing services, and it's not to downplay government funding. Government funding's fine, but if all we are here to do is win the next contract or the next customer and just sustain ourselves off that work, that's actually not why we get a tax deduction. We get a tax deduction to solve people's problems and the most disadvantaged people of society, we really focus on working with them to solve problems. So that's the kind of purpose we've got to really remind ourselves about consistently. And I worry sometimes that too many uh, not-for-profit leadership groups have forgotten about that. Sometimes I've felt that my role in organisations and particularly now at the Smith family is almost like the kind of descriptor should be chief storyteller because <laughs> I think that's all I spend a lot of time doing, you know, is telling stories. It's simplistic, but, you know, trying to in whatever way possible kind of bring people back to, you know, why we exist, our mission purpose and why our work is not yet done and why we've got to keep on keeping on and kind of, pushing ourselves not not in a way that's unsafe or dangerous for people we want to be very careful about well-being and the like but always kind of pushing at that edge of things and I had a great mentor the late Steve Lawrence who was the founder of Workventures an organization Sydney-based organization has this incredible story and Steve was a self-disclosed serial entrepreneur and just an incredible kind of entrepreneurial guy and a lot of that was you know didn't play out as well as it could but but it was came from that place of there's still more to be done now, you know, in kind of addressing the needs of our community. We've got to be really externally orientated in thinking about that and, and responding to that. How do you keep that external viewpoint and keep in touch with that? Because as we know, you know, when you're a CEO of a really large organisation, there can be challenges with being really in touch with, with what's happening on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, look, I'm glad you've said that, Tracy. It's hard. I think it's hard for all of us at every level in an organisation, but particularly in an organisation and in a large organisation. I mean, I think the kind of the weight of the machinery of how bureaucracy sometimes kind of consumes us and it's very easy to just think that that's our work and that's all we need to do and it can be satisfying it feels like we're making a difference in doing our work, but you know, our work is much much more than that. I love what you said before as well, Doug, around being the chief storyteller. When we see this being done well is is how it's done well. And it's about that those, you know, we, we know what our mission is as an organization. We've we've set ourselves ambitious targets and we know we, where we want to head. And I think being really clear on that is that f- sort of first step. And then coming back and sort of giving that data back through the organization in the form of stories is what pe- makes people see the value in the work that they do. And then it doesn't matter what role you're in, but you understand the impact that you're having on those people that you support. I think that's that that recipe that when we see this done well is what organizations are doing. Just a little side note, Tracy and I a long time ago worked in the for-profit space in insurance and we had to really try and find meaning in that work and that was bloody hard. 
<laughs> compared to it. So, you know, I was on the board, you know, after not long after that on the board of some not-for-profits. I'm like, guys, like we've got like so many great stories to tell here, you know, we're just not telling them. And we're, we're trying to work out how selling someone an insurance policy was somehow some sort of social impact. So I really resonated with what you said before around like this is, it is a piece of gold that sits within this sector. And if we're tapping into those stories and we're bringing them to life for our people, it's just sitting there if we're not. But if we are, it's the fuel that really fuels these organisations forward. Great point. I think it can make an enormous difference. And, um, you know, just as a little aside, many years ago, I remember running a program for corporate leaders and not-for-profit leaders. And we are really saying, look, corporates, you're not here to mentor, you're here to learn together. And, and it was great, really. But we did this exercise where we got them all to put on a bit of paper, just write their mission statement, and we put them all up on the wall. And you could not tell apart the for-profit from the not-for-profit, just to the, about the kind of blurred lines around purpose and mission. You know, increasingly, there's that kind of alignment. And, and because, yeah, we're waking up to the great currency of purpose. At the end of the day, you know, people right now, we've heard about, you know, the stories of the great resignation that's coming and all of those sorts of things that it's not just about money anymore. I think we get moving away from a world where it was okay to make money at the expense of everything. That's all those lines are blurring. Organizations, people are all starting to go, you know, why? Why am I doing this? Why am I spending my best hours of my week working on this particular thing? And for a lot of people, making money is not becoming a good enough answer anymore. They're wanting to know what impact am I really having? So yeah, it's yeah, look. I totally agree, Dan. And, you know, as, as I talk to kind of the, yeah, the Smith family's got an amazing community of supporters and donors, you know, nearly 200,000. And their contribution to our organisation and to many others in the not-for-profit environment is, is in part about kind of meaning purpose in life and how, you know, we all contribute in, in different ways. And one of the great innovations that I think the Smith family has, which is building on others in the sector, is around the why, how do you meaningfully and respectfully connect a supporter with a beneficiary who's, you know, gaining from the contributions. And there's a whole lot of things to be very careful about in relation to that, but it just is so kind of nourishing for people to see the difference they're making in in people's lives. And also, it's a great means of enhanced kind of social understanding and awareness of the challenges that people really experience, what it's like to live and face real challenges. So, it's a great means of social change as, as well. Thanks so much, Doug. So I've really loved our conversation today. I particularly really enjoyed, you know, our conversation all about the pillars of leadership and I guess really how as a leader, you know, through being connected and spending the time actually understanding what's happening outside the organisations, making a really big difference. But also just some of your views around philanthropy and what's in store. I, I think that it's a really optimistic view to think that we can start to really influence systems through collaboration and working together. So thanks so much for sharing. And we will link the Smith family and also the information about your centenary in the show notes. So if people want to get involved, um, I'm assuming that's the best place to be able to do that. That sounds great. Look, thanks to you both. I really enjoyed the conversation and thanks for a terrific um, podcast. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Doug. Thanks for coming on the show. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Innovate for Impact podcast. Any links to what we spoke about today will be posted in the show notes. If you'd like to know more about social innovation, visit our website where we have a heap of tools to help you on your way. Visit impactoconsulting.com.au Thanks for listening. Now go out there and make an impact.